Hello and welcome to Just The Tonic, the podcast that shines a light on the power of the arts to make our lives just so much better. I'm Katie Derham and this is the fifth episode of Series 2. And if you'd like to catch up on episodes you've missed or maybe have a listen again, you will find us wherever you get your podcasts. We are in all the usual places. Now, you may well be aware that the proms are in full swing at the moment, featuring musicians from all over the world at the top of their game, like violinist Selina Bragimova, Pat Kopp, pianist Lifuva Aznes, Yuzha Wang. But let's face it, not many of us will ever reach anywhere near the skill level of those fantastic musicians. But of course, that shouldn't stop us from having a go. And in this episode, we're going to be hearing from the People's Orchestra's Rusty Players. Many orchestras have a minimum standard that I'd probably fail most of them, but Rusty's was ideal for me. We've been speaking to some young people in Croydon to find out what they think about opera. I only thought that it was only singing really loud and it would be a bit boring, but when I got there, I got very, very surprised because they were singing and acting at the same time. And I'm going to be having a chat with one of the finest opera singers in the land. The one, the only, the force of nature that is, Mr Nicky Spence. Singing was a bit of a superpower for me when I was at the age of eight, thinking, how am I going to make this work? How can I keep the bullies away? Now, in the last series, singers in the Halle Community Choir and the People's Orchestra Hales Owen Show Choir told us how much they benefit from singing together. And maybe you think, well, I can't sing. Well... Don't worry, Nicky has got some great tips for you and I look forward to hearing more from him later. But first, we're going to go over to musicians from the People's Orchestra who are what it says on the tin. They are rusty players. Perhaps not quite got the confidence to play with the main orchestra. Perhaps they've never even played with an orchestra at all. But the Rusty Players Orchestra gives them the opportunity to make music, regardless of ability. They recently performed with the main orchestra and the show choirs at the Birmingham 2022 Festival all around the Commonwealth, and we caught up with them at rehearsals. Here's French horn player Mike. Before I moved to Birmingham, I hadn't played my horn in an orchestra for a couple of years, so I was rusty and I was looking for something that would, I could just go along to and would accept me for the study that I was. Many orchestras have a minimum standard and I'd probably fail most of them, but Rusty's was ideal for me. Hi, I'm Amy Marshall and I play the French horn. I joined the Rusty Players Orchestra because I needed to get back into playing. I hadn't played my French horn for such a long time and I had some really big important concerts coming up that I wanted to get back into, into practice for. It's so important to keep live music going and it's really nice to have this music skill that I'm getting back getting back into for the, like the first time in a very long time. I'm really enjoying playing again and it's with such a lovely group of people. It's a lovely conductor, it's really welcoming. Hi, I'm Bradley. I am the conductor of the Rusty Players Orchestra, so it's my job to lead rehearsals, choose the music we're going to play for concerts and just make sure that everything's sounding good and everyone's feeling happy with what they're doing. So unlike other orchestras where you have like a very sort of intense concert program and sort of very intense rehearsals, we rehearse in a very um, laid back, um, it's actually a bowling alley uh, near a pub which is great for socials after the concert, after the rehearsal. 
it's always fun. Um, we have a good time, people support you. Um, I'm very, very rusty, but others who are much better than me support me, so that helps. My name's Laura and I play tenor horn. I think my favourite moment was, was when I was able to play the pieces that they were playing, so I felt like I was joining in with everybody. My name's Ian, I play the trumpet. I am rusty, I'm starting back playing, and it's a good place to begin. It's very friendly, and it's gone really well. My name's Kerry, I play the bassoon in the Rusty Players Orchestra. It's a really um, safe space to try out, see if you can still play, um, and then you'll surprise yourself. It was a more of a challenge, really, to be honest with you. Uh, I just wanted a new challenge. I'm Kevin, I'm a bassist. So I played in cover, covers bands and I played in a couple of unsigned bands prior to this and I just wanted to do something different. We can accept almost any instrument, uh, even ones which uh, wouldn't fit in a traditional symphony orchestra. Hi, I'm Sang and I play the alto saxophone. I'm quite a, uh, quite a latecomer to playing, playing a musical instrument. I uh, started playing the, um, the alto saxophone at the age of 46. So I'd been playing since the previous September and my teacher said it'd be great if you could join an ensemble. And it's quite difficult to, to find an ensemble when you're an adult. There's loads in Birmingham for kids. They have like a music service. My, my kids are in them. But, um, and then um, one of my friends um, sent me the link on Facebook and said, look, this is a, it's an orchestra, but not only is it an orchestra, it welcomes saxophones. Whatever your instrument is, come along and play. It's a friendly atmosphere and even if you haven't played for years and your instrument's been gathering dust in the loft, get it down and come. This isn't a professional level. Uh, no one's going to write it up in the papers if you play a wrong note. We're all rusty and that's, that's the point. It's, it's great just to be able to make music together as, as adults. And lots of people used to play as kids and haven't played for years. Everyone's really supportive and we just have a really good time making some music. We play really popular um, film music, game music, music from shows, pop music. For example, today we're going to be playing um, some music by Adele, Hans Zimmer and some sort of Ibiza club classic. So we play a range of different music. And it's just when everybody's working together and playing in tune, it sounds fantastic. Many thanks to conductor Bradley Wilson and all the wonderful musicians in the Rusty Players Orchestra who, I am sure, will not stay rusty for long. Huh? What is opera? Opera's a popular art form full of genres guaranteed to make you marvel. Tragedies, comedies, romance, hit follow me. Let's go behind the scenes, see the whole story properly. Earlier this summer, English National Opera joined forces with Something Else TV Studios to make Abracadopra for Sky Kids. It's a TV programme designed to introduce young people to opera for the first time. It's a comedy musical drama based around a school that's forced to cancel their visit to the London Coliseum, home of ENO, but a group of larger-than-life opera characters save the day by bringing the opera to the school. Here's Beth Warnock, head of learning at English National Opera, to tell us more. So the concept and the sort of initial idea behind this piece was what would happen if we 
uh, collated the idea of kids TV or the short sort of video format that you often see primary school teachers using in classrooms. What if we were to place opera in that sort of environment? What parts of opera would we use and what might the story be told that could engage with those sort of younger children? Taking part in Abraked Opera were pupils from the Federation of St Joseph's Catholic Junior Infant and Nursery Schools in Croydon. And uh, we asked them what music they usually listen to. I enjoy listening to George Ezra because he just, I don't know, he just does really good songs. And I like Ed Sheeran because I really like his song. And I like listening to Mary J Blythe because I really like slow beats. My favourite artist is Melanie Martinez because I like most of the songs that she like makes. I like Ed Sheeran because his music is really romantic. Yeah, not a mention of Verdi or Wagner. Seems like Beth may have had her work cut out for her. Here she is again. The English National Opera was founded by Lillian Bayliss on the intention that opera should be for everybody and that everybody should be able to access opera. Allowing us to do something like broadcast means that we can reach so many more schools and young people through our programming than if we were to do this as a live in-person show. The resources and capacity that we have to sort of deliver this live would be much smaller. And actually by being able to provide them with a free programme that they can watch within their classroom for 45 minutes by just the teacher sticking it onto the screen in the classroom, it allows for us to engage with some teachers who might be a little bit more cautious or unsure about whether opera might be something that might interest their children. So what did our friends at St Joseph's School in Croydon think? Did Abracadopera whet their appetite for opera itself? I would probably like, like to go back and see an opera because on Abracadopera it was like really interesting and I think that it'd be more like intriguing for me if I went there to a proper opera. I thought like opera was just singing really, really loud, but now it's changed because it's talking about maybe you're singing about something that happened or maybe something you want to reflect on. So it's really made a big impact on me. I would like to go back to the opera because I learned a lot of stuff on the way they do it and maybe like the true meaning of opera and if I go back I'll learn lots more and I would really enjoy it. My opinion has changed a lot because I only thought that it was only singing really loud and it would be a bit boring but when I got there I got very very surprised because they were singing and acting at the same time. I would like to go back to the opera again because now that I've seen the more fun side of it it will be a lot more fun to watch. Big thanks to Billy, to Ella Jade, Cara, Holly, Nicholas and their teacher Miss Bickmore and to Beth Warnock at English National Opera. And you can watch Abracadopera on Sky Kids On Demand and on Sky's Access All Arts Week website. Now, the inimitable Nikki Spence has been described by the Times as a tenor who combines heroic tone and a poetic sensibility that takes the breath away. Nikki, who's from Dumfries in Scotland, has had what can only be described as an eventful year. It took a lot of hard work and physio, but he's made an extraordinary recovery. He's won BBC Musician Magazine's Personality of the Year this year. He's very recently performed at the proms in a sailor's outfit, dancing a jig. And he was also giving a recital at the Wigmore Hall with his husband, Dylan, who's a pianist, after they returned from their long-awaited honeymoon. 
I've known Nikki for really rather a long time now. I think our paths first crossed at a classical Brit Awards back in the early 2000s. And I distinctly remember he was wearing an electric blue kilt. Quite the picture. He's been so busy and I'm such a big fan. I'm delighted that he could squeeze me into his action-packed schedule. And uh, I began by asking him when he knew his voice was something special. Well, I'm still coming to grips with it all, you know, that I can sing. But I was always a very noisy child from quite a dramatic background. So singing was a bit of a superpower for me when I was, you know, a ginger, fat, possibly homosexual at the age of eight, thinking, how am I going to make this work? How can I keep the bullies away? So I saw that I could sing and that was like a superhero cape for me in a way and kept people away. So I thought at that point that was my USP because it got people off my back. I could just kind of sing at them. So it did work, did it? Did it actually successfully become your superpower? It did, absolutely. With the bullies, it was kind of that and a kind of propelling cagoule in the school ground, you know, with the toggles, which can be quite violent. So that was my saving grace. (laughs) So singing for you was um, a joy, but also um, an escape and a weapon in a way. I don't wish to sort of use military language with the glorious art form, but, you know, it was something that you used to protect yourself. But let's talk about Anyone Can Sing. That was the Sky Arts programme in which you took some great characters who thought they couldn't sing, but you magically transformed them. Um, Is that something you've now been sharing with these lovely amateur singers that you've been helping? That sort of access to the superpower, if you like? Absolutely. I mean, with all of them, they were all such glorious, charismatic creatures in their everyday life, even if they were plumbers and we had the Dean of King's College. But they all had some kind of trauma and something that they had to try and unpack with this feeling that when they sang, actually, it was something very, very deep-seated. And often their oral perception of their own voices switched off. They went into this trauma. So as always, I mean, I do lots of kind of mentoring and teaching of young folk, and it's generally trying to peel back these layers of why are you not releasing? Because singing opera is basically about release. That's how you make a big sound. But it's difficult to know your body and to know yourself mentally well enough to be able to deliver that and be vulnerable enough because it's so vulnerable. As you know, it's your it's your soul on a dinner plate. So how did you help them work through that through the power of song? How does it how how do you sort of get through those layers of trauma? Well, it's looking, first of all, at why they want to sing. What is it they want to achieve? And with our lovely Dean of King's College, she felt as if her clergy box was missing a tool because she always wanted to encourage people to sing, to be closer to God. And she felt as if she was praying thrice fold if she could sing as well. But she couldn't do that. She thought she was absolutely marooned from the island of melody. She was tone deaf. And actually, I had to try and distract her while she was singing. I used to throw household objects at her, as you probably saw in the series, just to try and distract her so she could sing in tune because she was switching off as soon as she made a sound because she was told that she was a crow when she was at primary school, which is just horrendous. This is sort of vaguely reminiscent of um, the King's Speech, isn't it? You know, the Colin Firth film where his... Uh, voice coach again would be sort of saying just think about music think think about anything in order to try and distract him from his stammer it is a fascinating thing isn't it that we all have this ability and yet something can block it in that way Mm. well I think we block ourselves all the time 
with all kinds of things. I've worked with professional singers and had them wield things around their heads just to try and distract them. And myself, I have got myself in a right pickle with difficult opera roles, just thinking, well, there's absolutely no chance that I'm going to be able to do this. And most of it is psychological planning, you know, like an athlete, dare I say it with my physique. But it's it's true. It's all about planning and about psychology in the end. That's what makes it a hard business. Uh, how do you do it then? What's 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 the trick? Because, listen, if any of us listening to this could access even a, a fraction of your voice for ourselves, it would be truly amazing. So how do you kind of get yourself into the headset where you think, no, I'm, I'm not going to be beaten by that role or that note? Well, for me, I mean, I never really think of my voice as being particularly good, but I think I'm a good storyteller and I've got, I have got some pipes in there, which kind of, you know, is like the supporting actor to my, you know, to my need to communicate, if you will. But actually, if it comes to say nerves, I've spoken to lots of therapists about this, and often it's about nerves and about your perception of what other people might think. And I'm sure we all go through life dealing with that concept. And I had a breakthrough as soon as I used to look at where these nerves were coming from. And actually, often they're from a really good place because we want to do our best and we want people to think good things about us and feel generally joyful. And as soon as you reframe it through that prism and think, actually, they're there for a good reason. They're like almost like bodyguards in the room, kind of winking at you to just say everything's all right. And as soon as you have that relationship with nerves or with say, this feeling of judgment, then you can actually tip your cap to them and say, please leave now, because I know you're here for a good reason, but I don't need you just now. Gosh, I'm envious of you being able to do that. I must say, that's a very powerful image, though, the idea of your nerves being a bodyguard as opposed to a sort of a threat, if you like, them being on your side. Trying to kind of (laughs) suck your life away. So do you think then um, that was something that you've, you've sort of reconciled quite recently? I think so. I've got more comfy in my own skin. I mean, we we met up the old red carpet of the Classical Brit Awards, and I was very much into the commercial side of classical music back then. But I didn't really have much substance in terms of, I felt, talent, or uh, I wasn't allowed to really be truly myself. And these days, I'm not sure if it's just because I'm a bit older and a bit tired. I can't be anybody but myself. So you just... You get what you get with me, which is joyful. And I'm quite comfortable in my own skin. And doing operas is great because you get to wear wigs and, you know, the odd man girdle, the myrtle, if you will. I should trademark that. And But when I'm doing recital, I am myself telling stories. And I feel quite comfortable now just being me. And I suppose that's part of the, dare I say it, brand I think it's really important that you appreciate what a great role model you are, because that kind of confidence and being comfortable in your own skin and then being able to channel that through your music is something that is would be so helpful for so many of us. And I think maybe particularly kids. I mean, you found your voice when you were a child. Lots of kids don't. As you say, so many of us get told we're not, we can't sing in tune or you just mime at the back of the choir, love. You know, I mean, it, it's awful, isn't it? And, and music and singing is so good for you. I mean, I'm sure you agree that, you know, everybody, every every child should sing, right? Absolutely. I mean, shame on anybody that says our wee Johnny doesn't have a note in his head or he can't sing and mustn't sing. Because even if they don't end up being singers or musicians, we know, and glorious people like Nikki Benedetti tell us almost daily, thank God, that just being part of music gives you so many other transferable skills and actually allows you to be a better human. Let's just say it. 
How do you find kids respond to opera generally? With fear, excitement and hilarity. Often they just can't believe that such a small person, I mean, not me, but other opera singers make a noise and it's massive. It fills an auditorium. It'll fill their assembly hall, certainly. So I think they find it quite ridiculous, which it is, <laughs> to be fair. Do you like working with kids? I do, except it's terrifying, as I'm sure you know, because they look into your soul. So there's no kind of wafting away with any kind of fakery, which you can almost get away with with an older audience because they're slightly more polite. With little ones, they're just straight into the, the heart of the matter. They'll tell you if you like it or not. You know, we, we all agree. Everybody can sing. Everybody should sing. It's all terribly good for us. I mean, in your um, experience, how would you explain to people how it makes you feel? It's a visceral feeling. Using your body as a vehicle to make such a noise, even if you don't make a huge noise, just that feeling of release in your body is something which could be bottled and sold on the street. It's something which we have when we're babies and that we can scream for hours and hours, as I'm sure you know from personal experience, that we babies can scream and they don't get tired. Whereas when we go through life and we get slightly stressed and we take on you know, the stresses of going on the district line for three hours or whatever else we're doing in a day, we try and squeeze in, then slowly we hold on to things physically and then we're unable to actually access that primal part of ourselves. So opera is, we get to go back into that lovely primary, primal visceral space again and we're able to tap that and it feels amazing. People have said it's better than sex, but I shan't say that. It's rude. And obviously, they're not married to the right people. <laughs> How have you felt music has helped people generally over the last couple of years? Because, I mean, you were really active during the pandemic, doing lots of online concerts and getting really involved and, uh, being, you know, supporting help musicians, the charity and so on. So I, I know I've felt that even my little contribution of, of being, you know, a Radio 3 presenter was was actually helping people, which was a lovely feeling. Did you get that too? Absolutely. I think there's something about music that often gives us that feeling of togetherness and can often give the words to our emotions and to some kind of salve, which we can't find otherwise sometimes, even in the best of our friends. You know, we find this quiet space just for us. But in terms of the pandemic, I do quite a lot of community work in my local South East London community and they really missed the social side of it, actually making music together. So to be able to have some kind of connection, even through, you know, the glorious powers of Zoom, they were actually had this feeling of belonging and this sense of being part of something bigger than themselves, which I think people really had hunger and they craved for, even though, you know, we all lost our voices screaming into screens, etc. It was actually such a lovely thing for so many people. And it's interesting because I was sat there thinking, is there anything beyond my larynx? Am, am I a person anymore? You know, because you go and do this, you give your whole life to your art in a way, and you're squeezing gigs in here, there and engagements. But it was so lovely just to be that person and just not do it for a while as well and think, oh, yes, I am a person, thank God. And let's make sure that I still devote myself to life as well. So you're not just a husk of a, of a larynx in the end. <laughs> Did you open the windows, fling open the shutters and sing to the street? Oh, yeah, very Oliver. Very <laughs> who will buy. 
Did you do the same? Were you the strawberry lady? Or any meals today? I was just wanting to, you know, feed the birds. That's what I was... Yeah, not tuppence a bag, not with this inflation. <laughs> Five quid a bag probably now. Actually, musicals, there's a thing. I'd love to see you on the West End stage and giving it a little bit of that. Would that ever happen, do you think? Oh, I don't know. The thing is, I'm so close to it all the time. I'm so lucky that because of my voice, I get to do quite a lot of fun, dramatic characters. And I don't actually get to play fun people very often. I'm often playing repugnant kind of, you know, horrible rapey people and (laughs) that kind of thing, which is a great as an actor, because it's obviously quite far away from me. But any chance, I mean, say the proms earlier on to do this little cameo of the sailor, I basically used it as an opportunity to dance, which I do for most things. Because I would love to be a dancer as well, you know. If Strictly doesn't call one of these days, I'm going to have to have words with the powers that be. I mean, would you like to do that? Would it be the best but fun in the world? I would cancel every ring cycle in my diary to be on Strictly Come Dancing. I can't tell you. I I can't talk about it. I can't actually watch Strictly very much because I get too upset. I think you'd be amazing. I think you'd be amazing. And and I'm so pleased that you you would do it because I... I sort of sometimes worry that people think, oh, well, I, you know, I, would I still get taken seriously at the opera house? You know, and it's like, well, of course you would. Of course you would. I mean, the hips don't lie, Nicky Spence. You are the Shakira of the uh, the lyric tenor world. <laughs> underneath my clothes is an endless story. As she also said, underneath my clothes is a library of stories. But <laughs> she, um, yes, I do. I do love dancing. But now, when as soon as I broke my legs earlier in the year, that was the first thing I was worried about was my dancing career. I mean, let's just let's. Just, I mean, I don't want to make light of that accident. It was horrid that accident, Nikki. You fell down the stairs, didn't you? Which is something we've all done. But you only you only went and broke both of them. I know it was. I'm a high achiever in that way. But it, it wasn't. It wasn't fun. And it, weirdly, ironically, it was three days after we got married. And I had done the most death-defying dance moves at the wedding. I was doing knee slides. I mean, things people my age should not do anyway without, you know, supervision from Anton Dubeck. I was doing leg lifts, lifting members of my family, other people's family, people I didn't even know. And they weren't even invited to the wedding. I was just lifting Ball people. Stuff. Staff. It was great. I was very generous with my dancing. and But then just walking down the stairs, looking at my phone, Ladies and gentlemen, do not look at your phone, ever. Let that be a lesson to us all. So how many months before you were back up on your feet then? Uh, uh, Three months, really. I was in a wheelchair for three months. Bless you. And in in hospital for a month. But I really cashed in that uh, health and what they call it, in goodness and health. I can't remember my own vows. I think think there might be a sickness in there somewhere. I was sick of the legs. Mal du jambe. I was mal du jambe, and my gorgeous husband wheeled me around like a small bungalow around the streets of Southeast London. But actually, I was so determined. I was, I mean, uber positive, of course, but I went clubbing as soon as I came home in a wheelchair. And I have to say that it was such an eye opener. There were so many glorious things about accessibility in London. Um, obviously, lots of work still needs to be done, especially in classical music venues. I actually went and did a some kind of fundraising event for a classical venue. And I couldn't get into the building in my wheelchair, which is... I've I've got a number of friends who play with the para orchestra. And, uh, I mean, just don't even get them started on it. And how do you expect me to get onto the stage without a ramp? Hello? 
you know. Exactly. Yeah. Short of attaching a zip line to the back of your wheels. Yes. You know, yeah. which isn't always the way to arrive on stage. Let's be honest. So, yes, that was a real open opener. But actually, if you go clubbing, often they have a very special section for people who are less able. So that was glorious. I went in there and felt like a VIP. That's really cool, actually. <laughs> and help musicians were amazing. They were, I mean, I've always known they're such a force for good. And I've been very happy with our kind of relationship. But they were actually incredibly helpful. I had a lovely conversation for this podcast with Leslie Garrett, who does a lot with help musicians as well. And she was singing their praises. And I think I I hadn't realised quite how deep their support goes, not just in a, oh, here's a sort of an emergency fund if you're short of money or, or you know, but really supporting her through ill health and tough times. And it sounds like they did the same for you. Absolutely. I mean, we all saw how tremendously were during the pandemic in terms of being a force for good and actually just being a practical support for so many people that couldn't even pay their bills. But for me, it was more about the psychological support of having such a potentially life-altering injury. You feel so alone. And I came from such a high of, you know, being so busy operatically and having just got married, which is such a great life event, to not being able to walk. And I felt as if I didn't know how I was going to get from A to B and A being, you know, lying in a hospital bed and B being able to just walk again and actually doing that by yourself without somebody to actually look at your case and help you with physio support can be so lonely and psychologically really quite upsetting. So I was really, really glad. And I had first person experience of how wonderful and supportive they can be, you know, and that's just beyond the day to day that they do. I think that's worth shouting from the rooftops how helpful they are, actually. Um, it's, because it's tough. There aren't many safety nets for professional musicians, are there? There really aren't. No, and it's too bloody hard. Even when you're good and you're busy all the time, I don't know how folk do it. It's I do really say to young people, yes, absolutely do this, but it is quite difficult. Yeah, yeah. So you're back up on your feet. You are full of beans, busy, busy as ever. Um, and are you dancing? I am, given yes, any opportunity. Good. Excellent. So all is returned to normal, which is, uh, you know, normal service has been resumed in the Spence world. Um, what are the upcoming highlights? Come on, share some of your glamorous life with us. Absolutely. Well, we're. I'm just about to go and teach on a lovely course with Malcolm Martineau. He runs this gorgeous course up in Scotland, which I did about 25 years ago. And he is sort of one of the king of king of accompanists, isn't he? King of accompanists, absolutely. Mm. Um, collaborative pianist of the gods. So we're going to go and do that together. And Dylan's coming too, to mentor as well, which will be fantastic. And then I am not off the stage. I'm doing lots of operas. I'm doing Macropolis Case at Welsh National Opera. And then we've got um, some ring cycles coming up, new ring cycles at La Monet in Brussels and uh, coming back to the Metropolitan Opera, New York and <gasps> London and recordings and, oh, busy, busy. Are you managing to coordinate with Dylan's diary as well? Because it's tough, isn't it? Trying to kind of have both of you flying off in different directions, doing all these glamorous gigs everywhere. I mean, our iCal is a veritable Charlotte's Web. Mm. It's, you know, and just getting somebody to look after the dog. And we want to have babies soon as well, which isn't as easy as one might think. That's exciting news, Nikki Spence. Oh, Definitely. I'm just, I want to go and move to Scotland. 
and go and do a bit of living amongst singing as well. But I think it's so important to invest in that part of your life. Does Dylan like Scotland? Definitely, yes. That's a relief. Exactly. I'm not just going to hold him up like a mould woman in south of Scotland. Just you stay there. I'll be back in a few days. Just leave him some, a bowl of pedigree chum and hope for the best. No, we are going to very much do the whole Margot good life. It'll be sustainable living and sweet peas as far as the eye can see. But you see, you have slightly revealed. That was a very Freudian slip. You see, the good life, yes. Margot, though, she was one in the turban having a martini, staying away from the gardening. She looked... <laughs> he does have a turban and quite a few kimonos, so just the tonic. Many thanks to Nicky Spence. Always such a pleasure to catch up with him. And thank you also to the People's Orchestra's Rusty Players and conductor Bradley Wilson and to the pupils and Miss Bickmore from St Joseph's School in Croydon and to Beth Warnock at English National Opera. In our next episode, we're going to be hearing from singers from the People's Orchestra's many show choirs. We'll also be hearing from writer Kit Duval, whose brilliant new book, Without Warning and Only Sometimes, a childhood memoir of growing up in a household of opposites and extremes in 1960s Birmingham, is soon to be featured as Book of the Week on Radio 4. Now, if we've inspired you to pick up an instrument to make music, then do search online for music groups in your area or get in touch with Arts Council England, the Arts Council of Wales, the Arts Council of Northern Ireland or Creative Scotland. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media for updates. We're on Twitter and Instagram and if there's something you think we should be including in this podcast, do let us know. Thank you so much for listening. Just the Tonic with Katie Derham was produced by Jill Davis and is a Peanut and Crumb production supported by the People's Orchestra and by Arts Council England.